Okay, three, Erica, three, this is activation, activation for Scene, Claremont County. Erica, three. Base, Erica, three is listening with three souls on board. Two hours plus two zero on the fuel. Be six minutes EP to our scene. Copy that, put you off 1411. Hey, Nicholas here, currently a fourth year med student at OHSU. I'm sitting down today in Cincinnati with one of the national gurus on helicopter EMS, Dr. Bill Hinckley. He's an attending at the University of Cincinnati and the medical director of their helicopter EMS program called AirCare. He has also authored many pieces in the literature on aeromedicine and has made flying frequently an integral part of his career. This is pretty rare for EM physicians in the United States, so I wanted to pick his brain and learn a little bit more about flight medicine and how he has made this his career. Well, thanks a lot for joining us on the podcast today, Dr. Hinckley. Uh, can you just start off and tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me. I really appreciate it. Um, I've been really impressed with uh, EMIGcast from what I've seen so far, so it's uh, really an honor to, to be with you. So I'm a essentially a 17th-year resident uh, here at UC. Maybe they'll let me graduate one day. Um, I, uh, I fly a lot. I teach a lot. I see patients in the ER. I do a little bit of research, probably not very well. Um, I've done a lot of national advocacy stuff in terms of I was uh, on the board of an organization called AMPA, the Air Medical Physician Association, for 10 years, and I served as the president of that. Uh, and I'm still involved with that organization and, and several other uh, helicopter EMS organizations as well. I'm uh, I'm on Twitter quite a bit at uh, at UC Aircare Doc, and uh, I love uh, conversing with other uh, critical care transport and and uh, HEMS and farm people out there all over the world. Um, and I really caught uh, a few years ago the uh, FOMED bug, the free open access uh, medical education. And so Jeff Hill and I and several others, uh, and largely Jeff Hill. Um, have have put a lot of work into a uh, a website called tamingtheshrew.com which is a, a FOMED site here at UC that uh I, I think many of your listeners would really enjoy checking out we've got a, a lot of great uh, emergency medicine and uh critical care transport content on there uh podcasts procedural videos blog posts some really good stuff quick interjection Shrew is Cincinnati's nickname for the shock and recess unit, and that's essentially where the sickest of the sick go, medical resuscitation or trauma resuscitation. So tamingtheshrew.com is spelled tamingthesru.com. I'll put that link in the show notes. I used that website quite a bit when I was in Cincinnati on my away rotation. There's a lot of great content on there. All right, so tell me a little bit about how you got into this field originally. So... Uh, when I was a fourth-year medical student way back in 1999, uh, I, I went to IU School of Medicine in Indianapolis, but I did a uh, an away rotation in Denver uh, in emergency medicine. And that was a, a fantastic month in many ways. But while I was out there, uh, I remember just hearing some whispers on the wind uh, from some of the residents that there might be a possibility for a lowly medical student like myself to spend a day flying along with the, the local helicopter EMS program. Uh, 
And nobody could quite tell me exactly how to make that happen. It certainly wasn't an official part of that rotation. But it just struck me as something that I would probably really enjoy. And I don't know exactly why. Um, I've always loved commercial flying, but I have no aviation background. Um, I've always loved the sickest patients in emergency medicine. I've always loved the, the high adrenaline part of the specialty. Uh, and I've always loved speed. I, uh, I love roller coasters. It just, it just kind of seemed like the sort of thing I would like. So I ended up making probably about 40 or 50 phone calls, but I was finally able to actually make it happen. And I flew along with St. Anthony's Flight for Life, who I didn't even realize at the time, but uh, St. Anthony's was actually the very first civilian helicopter EMS program in the United States going way back to 1972, the Vietnam vet started that program. So back to 1999, I spent that day flying along with St. Anthony's Flight for Life, and it was a majestic, legendary day. We did four scene flights that day, uh, and I don't even remember the name of the pilot, the nurse, and the medic that I flew with, but they were awesome folks. And each one of those flights was a Goldilocks sort of illness, meaning uh, sick enough to certainly need helicopter EMS, but not so sick that you couldn't do anything to help them. And uh, four scene flights up in the Rocky Mountains. And after about six hours of that, I was like, this is easy. This is what I, I've got to do for my career. It was, it was just that easy of a decision. So a few months later then, when I was on the interview trail, um, I didn't have a lot of questions. You know, people always ask you, do you have any questions for me? And my, my answer to that was, yes, I've got one. How much can I fly here? And uh, Cincinnati had the best answer to that question, and I think we still do. Awesome. Well, that's a perfect segue. So um, go ahead and tell us a little bit about air care here, the flight program. You betcha. Uh, you're going to have to cut me off. Otherwise, I could talk about this for a long time. I'm pretty uh, passionate about it. So um, the first of all, the entire program is UC Health Air Care and Mobile Care. So we actually have four levels of transport. We do BLS, ALS, mobile ICU, which is ground uh, MICU ambulance, and then air care, the helicopter EMS program. And um, my, uh, my job is almost entirely focused on air care as opposed to the ground side. So I will limit our, my comments to that at this point. But it is worth recognizing that even though we do 1,500 flights a year, we do 15,000 ground runs a year. So most of our program is actually ground. Uh, but myself and the EM residents um, experience is is almost exclusively on the air side. Um, air care has been around since 1984, uh, so 33 years, more than 40,000 flight missions. And like I said, um, we do about 1,500 flights a year. We have three bases. We are most certainly not for profit. We are a hospital-based, university-based program. Um, certainly academic. We we publish uh, a, a lot of research, uh, at least relatively speaking, in the helicopter EMS world. Um, in terms of our crew, um, we we are pretty unique in the United States. Um, every flight has a pilot, a flight nurse and either a flight physician or a flight nurse practitioner. 
uh, about three-fourths of our flights have a physician on board and about one-fourth have an acute care nurse practitioner. Uh, those physicians are um, range from second-year residents up through attending. Uh, we have an EMS fellowship here, so the EMS fellows fly. Uh, myself and eight other attendings fly. And then all of our second, third, and fourth-year residents fly. Uh, people don't come to Cincinnati and, and do EM residency here if they don't want to fly. We philosophically, I think, differ quite a bit from a lot of American helicopter EMS programs um, because our focus is not so much in bringing the patients quickly to definitive care, although we certainly do that, but much more our focus is on bringing definitive care quickly to the patient um, so that the moment we get to wherever the patient is, the patient is then enveloped in UC Medical Center level of care. So that explains a lot about what makes us unique and ambitious uh, in terms of our crew configuration, as I've already mentioned. We fly with packed red blood cells, plasma, TXA, video laryngoscopy, hypertonic saline, hydroxocobalamin, Minnesota tubes, procedure kits for lateral canthotomy, for field amputations, for um, perimortem C-section, um, Sitting right over there across the desk from us are three new ultrasound machines that we're just getting ready to deploy on the aircrafts. We've got the EPOC so that we can check labs. Um, if, if any of our team comes to me and says, I thought of a new way that we can bring definitive care to the patient and we can find the room to stuff it on that helicopter, I'm all about it. That's awesome to hear. And that really jives with kind of what excited me about EMS in the first place, namely the fact that we conform medicine to the patient's surroundings in the field uh, versus bringing them to the ED where they, we kind of conform their disease to our flow within the emergency department. So helicopter EMS faces some unique patient care challenges like aircraft noise and difficulties communicating with the patients due to how loud it is in there. Uh, what are some of the biggest or most striking patient care challenges that um, have come up for you? That's a, that's a great question. Um, you're right. It is tough to communicate with the patient in flight. Um, it is doable. Um, frankly, there is sometimes some yelling or speaking loudly and lip reading that goes on, but at least the basics of communication, you know, is your chest pain uh, worse or better than it was five minutes ago? You can you can get, you're not going to get a, a full history. And so if a patient is alert enough to give you a history, which many of our patients are not, you're going to need to get most of that before you ever load them in the aircraft. Um, I used to view a lack of space in the aircraft as a challenge. Until we got bigger helicopters, and I realized I almost liked the smaller ones better because I could reach everything more easily. Um, but in general, we are spoiled. We, we do fly in some big aircraft. Many of the aircraft out there doing helicopter EMS space is a big limitation. Now, even in our big aircraft, doing CPR is really tough. Not impossible. Uh, but it, it's really tough. So space is still an issue at times. And, and certainly space does limit our ability somewhat uh, to do some procedures in flight. And so, again, a lot of procedures uh, get done before we load the patient. 
certainly there are challenges in terms of, you know, you don't have um, every piece of equipment that you've got in the hospital. Um, even though we carry a impressive armamentarium of critical care medications, we still don't have everything that you've got in the hospital. For instance, I don't yet have PCCs, prothrombin complex concentrates, although I think we will shortly. We're working on that. Uh, but we don't have everything. And we certainly don't have a ton of backup in terms of having every specialist like you do uh, when you're in the hospital. But at this point, I don't view that as a challenge. I view that as a part of what I love about it. You know, it's me and my partner in a roadside ditch somewhere, and all we've got is what we brought with us, and there's nobody there backing us up. And so we've got to do everything we can do for that patient in that environment. And that's challenging, but that's that's why I love it. So I barely view it as a challenge anymore. It's uh, It's just what makes it awesome. Um, on occasion, I think there is a challenge in terms of, all right, if I walk in to see a patient in the ER, you know, I've got some gray in my temples. I, I kind of probably sound like I know what I'm talking about. And so people tend to say, yeah, this guy, he looks like an old timer. I should probably listen to what he's saying. But when I approach a patient or a referring EMS department or a referring physician on air care. Sometimes I think those folks kind of mis mistake me for a paramedic. And please don't get me wrong. I love paramedics. I'm, I'm an EMS guy. Of course I love paramedics. But I think that sometimes I just don't get the same credibility or respect when I'm out there because people don't recognize that I'm an attending emergency doc because you don't commonly see attending emergency docs out there in the field in a roadside ditch. Um, and, and so that I, it's not a big challenge. It's just something where sometimes I have to uh, check myself a little bit in terms of being frustrated by that and and just go with the flow and and recognize why people aren't used to seeing an ER doc out there and it's cool. Uh, and uh, because I, I think part of that challenge is I typically introduce myself as, hey, I'm Bill, I'm, I'm with AirCare. You know, I, I'm not the sort of guy who's going to say, I'm uh, Dr. Hinckley, I'm an attending ER doctor. You know, it's just not my style. So I part of, I probably bring part of that on myself. So in EMS, sometimes interventions can be started en route, and in the case of air care, maybe even more advanced interventions like critical care level intervention can be started en route. But in many instances, the patient just needs to get to the hospital sooner rather than later for definitive care. So uh, what kind of evidence do we see for physicians on aircraft impacting outcomes compared to the more common flight nurse or uh, paramedic crew? So a couple of things on that. First of all, you're right. Sometimes the best thing is to stay in play, and sometimes it's to load and go and get the heck out of there. So what I'm constantly asking myself, at, at basically from the moment I meet a, a patient on an air care shift, I'm constantly asking, what does this patient need most right now? And whatever that is, do I have it or does it only exist at the hospital where I'm going to take them? 
And if the answer is what they need most right now is RSI, well, I've got that. So I might as well do it right now. If what they need most is a cardiac cath and percutaneous coronary intervention for their STEMI, that is something I don't have. Um, so in that case, I'm going to get moving toward the hospital uh, immediately, and then I'm going to do anything else that I can for that patient, treat their pain, treat their shock, uh, treat their uh, rhythm on the way, but I'm going to get them moving toward the one thing they need most. So you, you ask about evidence. I, I will say that um, based on my experience, there there is no doubt that there are many flight missions where the, I think the outcome is going to be the same with you or me or any other flight crew out there. Uh, there, there are flights where, uh, frankly, it doesn't matter that much who shows up uh, because really they just needed the transport quickly. Um, but I do think that there are a large number of flights where either by what my team has the knowledge and capability to do or sometimes what my team has the knowledge and capability not to do that otherwise maybe a, a another team with less um, experience or education might do something more aggressively that might actually not be necessary and could be harmful. So in fact, the, the longer I do this, the more I think that I, I a lot of times I make an impact by doing less, by having the confidence to do less. For instance, uh, at least 10 times in the past year, I have been called to a scene, shown up, and once I arrived, it became completely clear to me that the patient in no way was going to benefit from a helicopter flight. And so uh, I had the confidence to say to the patient, or if the patient wasn't conscious, to the patient's family and the EMS crew who had called, you know what, guys, good news. The, the patient's actually doing pretty well at this point, and they're not going to benefit from the stress and the hassle and the cost and the risk of flight. And so what I'd like to do is go with you guys by ground to whatever hospital makes the most sense. And that, I mean, that saves the patient uh, a fair amount of stress and, and a fair amount of cost. Uh, so I think that that is a positive outcome for the patient. Uh, but in terms of sicker patients that really need critical care and really need flights, I wish that there was more evidence published in the literature than there is. But that being said, I do think that there is a pretty robust literature base for physicians improving outcomes in trauma. Um, I'd be happy to, to share a couple of resources uh, for you to put in the show notes. Um, but the, the evidence is there for trauma. Uh, there is not, to my knowledge at this point, um, any any, any published studies on non-trauma patients, whether or not physicians on a HEMS team improve outcomes or not. My, my gut and my experience with air care tells me that, that they do. I think that the answer is probably not any different for non-trauma than it is for trauma, but I, uh, I will freely admit it's not been studied. Yeah. So that just makes me think that, um, you know, we also have to be cognizant of the differences in 
not just the level provider between like uh, MD versus paramedic that's on the on the flight, but also the equipment and um, and potential interventions that are available. Like for instance, I I don't think a lot of the helicopters that I'm familiar with out west carry quite so many um, you know procedural. Uh, toys, if you will, um, and, and it's t- tougher to compare apples to oranges that way, right? It is. You're right. It, that is going to be very, very difficult for even a world-class researcher to ferret out. For instance, if, if you were to compare, if you were to, to do a research study comparing patient outcomes uh, with air care versus another program that uh, that doesn't fly with uh, physicians or nurse practitioners and doesn't fly with blood products or some of the other things we have. It's going to be essentially impossible to ferret out any difference in outcomes in terms of were they due to a difference in crew configuration or were they due to a difference in equipment and capability. Um, So about the only way that, that that could be done is if you have a single program that always has the same equipment, but has different crews based on days of the week or different bases, and then that could be studied. And that was done, uh, way as I recall, way back in the 1980s. There was a study in that exact situation where one program, different crew configurations, comparing doc versus no doc, and that is one that, that did find uh, improved patient outcomes with the physician on board. Uh, but you're absolutely right. It is tough to, because if, if you're a program that flies with a higher level of uh, education amongst your clinical crew, you're more likely to have uh, additional capabilities in terms of your equipment as well. And that is tough to ferret out those differences. So on a similar vein, based on my knowledge, it kind of seems like physicians on rotor wing aircraft is more common in Europe and elsewhere throughout the world. Uh is this true? And, and why, if it is, why? That is true. Um, Europe, Asia, Australia, it is unusual to find a helicopter EMS program that does not fly with physicians. And the reason that they fly with physicians is, I think, very similar to the reason why you would be surprised if you ended up in an ICU in some hospital and no physician came in to take care of you. I mean, most people just sort of think, all right, if we are going to do something that is going to specifically seek out the sickest of the sick patients, then it would make sense to involve physicians in that. Um, But that has not played out in most of the United States um, because that is not the cheapest way to operate. And a lot of uh, a lot of programs uh, end up going with a different crew configuration because physicians are more expensive. Um, but uh, yes, your that assessment is absolutely true. So a lot of American docs who want to do helicopter EMS but end up having trouble figuring out a way to do it in America end up uh, going overseas to do it in uh, especially Europe and Australia. So for those uh, listeners that are interested, um, there's a pretty cool YouTube documentary about the London HEMS system that um, 
we both have enjoyed watching, so it might be fun for you listeners to go check it out if this is a topic of interest for you. So I know you fly a lot, but just how much is a lot? And uh, how did you structure your career around this? So if there was such a thing as an average week for me, which of course there really isn't, it would be three 12-hour flight shifts and one or two ER shifts on top of that. Uh, plus uh, some teaching, maybe a little bit of research, um, and uh, lots of administrative time. Now, a lot of that additional work I'm able to, to get done during non-flight time on flight shifts. Um, but uh, you're right. I work a lot, and I, I fly 36 hours a week on average. How was I able to do that? It took me quite a while to figure it out. So first of all, it is, you know, if, if you want to fly as a resident in America, uh, you got to go to a residency program where that is possible, uh, which are um, limited. Uh, but you've got uh, us with Air Care in Cincinnati. You've got University of Chicago, uh, the UCAN program. You've got uh, Life Flight, Metro Life Flight at uh, Metro Health in Cleveland. Um, you've got UW Med Flight in Madison. And then uh, some other programs that are where it is possible, but not done as much as it is at, at those four, would be um, Airlift Northwest at UW in Seattle, uh, Survival Flight at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, uh, University of New Mexico Lifeguard, and uh, Erlanger Life Force down in Tennessee. Um, now, at this point, even though I said I'm an R-17, yes, I'm, I'm not actually a resident. I am an attending. And flying as an attending is more difficult in America. So the answer for a lot of people is go overseas. But if you want to fly as an attending and stay in America, um, then you need to go to one of a few limited places or you need to become a medical director of a HEMS program. And then uh, once you are well integrated into that team as the medical director of essentially any HEMS program, you can probably find a way to, um, to actually integrate yourself into the flight team and, and fly regularly. So um, University of Wisconsin MedFlight, again, flies a lot of attendings. Um, uh, you can also do that again at uh, Metro Health in Cleveland. You can do that here uh, in Cincinnati at AirCare. And another program that flies exclusively attendings is uh, Aeromed in uh, Grand Rapids, uh, Spectrum Aeromed. Uh, they don't fly residents, just attendings, as I understand it. So for many years after I graduated from residency, I struggled to... So I would... Uh, I would essentially volunteer to fly two shifts a month as an attending. And that was cool. Um, and frankly, uh, it was necessary for me to, uh, to have a lot of time to, uh, to earn my chops in the ED, which only working one or two shifts a week in the ER like I am now would have been difficult. So I, I worked 10 years full-time in the ER and just picking up two shifts uh, a month on flight. But that wasn't enough flying to really scratch my my itch. Um, 
And so I tried to figure out how I could do it full time. I, I wanted to be as good at every aspect of the operations as my flight nurses. And that's hard to do because they are the best of the best. I finally figured out that what I needed to do was to be willing to do the job for less than, quote, attending doc money. Um, and frankly, I was willing to do the job for free. So that was not, uh, once I finally sort of that light bulb went off. And once we, um, in 2014, uh, air care went from two bases to three. And at that point, um, we realized that we did not have the physician manpower to staff the third base full-time with physicians like we always had before. So that's when we started adding the acute care nurse practitioners onto the team. And so I was looking at these acute care nurse practitioners that we had who are incredible clinicians and, and uh, great people, some of my best friends. And I was thinking, wait a minute, I'm really qualified to do their the job that they are doing. And I would certainly do it for the same money that they're doing it for. So I just applied for a flight NP position and uh, I interviewed and I was offered the position. So I'm not an NP, but I'm sort of a flight NP. And that is how I was able to work out flying full time. Um, and similarly, that is also how I got my gig as Air Care's medical director. When I was a fourth year resident, um, Steve Carlton, who I think you know, Nick, from your time here, uh, was Air Care's medical director. And I went up to Steve as a fourth year resident and I said, uh, Steve, that, that looks like a tough job. How would you like to have an associate medical director? I would be happy to do that for free. Um, and uh, Dr. Carlton said, uh, giddy up. You're going to help me out and it's not going to cost air care or the department anything. Giddy up. And uh, it was as simple as that. So I just had to be willing to work for cheap or for free. And uh, eventually that led to uh, what is the best job in the world, which is I'm a full-time flight doc and I'm a medical director of uh, a really awesome flight program. Um, now, yeah, I'm not getting rich, uh, but I really don't give a damn. I'm, uh, I've got the best job in the world and I, you know, I'm, uh, there's food on my table. I'm doing just fine. So does that make sense? Yeah, that's an awesome story. And, uh, yeah, fun, fun to hear. Sometimes you just kind of have to be at the right place at the right time and put your name in the hat and, and see what happens. Yeah. It is worth, uh, recognizing, however, that, uh, most of my, uh, most of my partners think I'm a bit crazy and they're probably right. And, uh, so what I am doing would not be right for everybody. And, um, my wife also thinks I'm a bit crazy, but at the same time, I, I really appreciate her willingness to allow me to do what, what I need to do, uh, to scratch the itch of what I'm most passionate about. So how do you think the flight experience here in, in the residency impacts the residency training and resident confidence. And how do you think that it compares to traditional moonlighting in terms of building autonomy and confidence without supervision? That's a great question. Let me try and answer that with a story. Uh, so a couple of years ago, uh, one of our flight teams was called out for a scene flight in the middle of the night. 
and I w- will spare you the details of how this occurred, but basically a young man did something foolish as young men tend to do and ended up uh, impaled with a sharp metal object that uh, entered the oral cavity and exited the left trapezius. And um, the resident on that flight at the time was in his second month of R2 year, and they come upon this patient who was hemodynamically okay, but was not, as you can imagine, able to oxygenate and ventilate successfully given all of the metal and blood and swelling in the upper airway. And the patient being impaled as he was, uh, was uh, lying on his side uh, because that was the only possibility. And so our team looked at each other and they immediately knew that there was only one possible solution um, for this patient to have a chance, which was a cricothyrotomy. And so they accomplished that right now, nailed it. And, you know, they're doing this in the middle of nowhere, you know, 40, 50 miles from Cincinnati. And uh, they completely saved this patient's life. The, The patient ended up stunningly, completely normal, perfect outcome. So you can imagine if, you, if you're in your uh, second month of your R2 year, let's say that you did the exact same thing in the trauma bay of an ED. You would feel awesome and your, your confidence would get bumped up significantly, but you would still know that you did that with probably multiple attendings there, a trauma attending, Maybe somebody would have called ENT. You would have had all this backup standing by. But when you do that same thing in, you know, rural Ohio, and there's no backup around, there's there's people available by cell phone or radio, it is an explosion in confidence. Um, that is, for most emergency medicine residents, not not even approximated until they either start moonlighting or until they're done with residency. Um, and even then, most EM residents still are not getting the same level of confidence because they're still doing what they do in the ED with a fair amount of backup as opposed to doing it out in the field. And I think confidence is hugely key to being the best ER doc that you can be because there's a one of the main differences between when you listen to a, a fourth-year medical student or an intern talk to a patient, and the patient doesn't isn't on board with their plan, and then the attending comes in and says the same thing, the patient's like, "All right, sounds good," and you're like, "Damn it, why is that?" It's because the attending said the same thing with a lot more confidence, and you can't fake that. You can only earn it by by being given autonomy in the care of really sick patients. And so that's what uh, what helicopter EMS uh, and the air care experience for our residents is so important for. Now, that's the, by no means the only educational piece that air care brings to the table, but it is, I think, the most important. Yeah, it's a really awesome story. I can certainly see how that would be an insane confidence boost. So during training or maybe during our careers, many of us will work at a smaller hospital and need to call for a helicopter to transport a patient. What kinds of things should we be keeping in mind to optimize their transport? That's a great question. Uh, First of all, we need to consider 
is a helicopter the correct mode? Uh, is the patient really sick but not time dependent, or are they really sick and time dependent? Or is the only way that you can get the level of critical care that that patient needs by a helicopter? But um, often, uh, the first question to ask yourself is not which helicopter, but do we really need a helicopter? If you have decided that, yes, I do think this patient is going to benefit from helicopter EMS, and you are, like most places in the country, uh, in a location with more than one option for more than one helicopter program, um, you want to be in a position to know the differences between those programs because there may be differences in terms of response time in terms of which one can, can get there sooner based on where they're based. There probably will be some differences in terms of either crew configuration or capability. It would be suboptimal uh, to call for a transfer for somebody who you know is in hemorrhagic shock and choose the program that doesn't carry blood products when there's one just as close that does, for instance. So you do want to educate yourself on the differences between different programs that uh, are in your area. One other thing that I think is important is this. You want, for the sickest sort of patients, the, the sickest of the sick, you want to do things in parallel as opposed to in series. A lot of, I would say even most ER docs mistakenly believe that you have to operate in series, meaning you have to first achieve an accepting hospital and an accepting physician, uh, and then call for a helicopter, when in fact, both can be done at the same time. There is no EMTALA violation by requesting a helicopter to come and get ready to transport a patient at your referring hospital while you are working on clarifying where that patient's going to go and who's going to accept it. There's only an EMTALA violation if that helicopter program shows up and leaves with the patient before you have secured acceptance. Uh, but you can save 30, 45, sometimes even more minutes than that by doing that in parallel as opposed to in series. And I, I wish uh, the entire emergency medicine uh, community would, would get that message. Ideally, it can save some time if you can get them into one of the bigger rooms in your department, uh, because it, when we're trying to squeeze in, uh, to the smallest room in your department, uh, with our stretcher as well as your ER stretcher and probably a couple of family members. And, uh, it, it just takes longer to move somebody than if we can wheel right into a big room and move them and get going. Uh, and certainly additional room is helpful if we need to do some sort of procedure that you haven't had the time to do to stabilize that patient. Most helicopter EMS programs and critical care transport programs on the ground as well are going to use syringe pumps as opposed uh, to the regular pumps that you're used to seeing in the hospital. Uh, so it can save us time if uh, if your nurses can draw up any drips that the patient needs into big 60cc syringes so that we can immediately put them on our syringe pumps. But above all else, if you are calling for a helicopter to transfer a patient from your ED, when that crew arrives, go to the bedside yourself. Don't ask your nurses to give the report. Um, they may do a great job, but they aren't going to do as good a job as you are at giving a succinct report um, 
that will allow that helicopter EMS team to really understand what you were thinking, uh, what your differential diagnosis has been, and uh, what the patient's course has been thus far. So go to the bedside yourself and uh, and give a report. It, it will be much appreciated and unfortunately doesn't happen as often as you would think or as it should. That's really good to know. So when we're thinking about transferring somebody out, um, anything we should have in mind in terms of contraindications for flight? So this is going to vary based on uh, airframes and uh, in, in various programs, but in general, um, patient size can be a real issue. Um, we, as I said, are, are lucky to fly in bigger aircraft that are very powerful. And so we can usually, depending on a patient's overall proportions, uh, fly patients up to about 450 pounds, um, at, at least in our EC-145 aircraft. Uh, we would be more limited than that with our 117 aircraft, our BK-117s. Um, so patient size is one thing that you're just going to need to talk to whatever program or programs are in your area and find out what their limitations are going to be on size. And it's not always just weight, but also dimensions and girth, uh, that can be an issue there with size. In general, uh, patients under active CPR, for the most part, uh, we don't load and fly. There are a few exceptions with that. Uh, and those exceptions may be broadening uh, with the uh, increased availability of ECMO, but still for the most part, if somebody's under active CPR, uh, we generally aren't going to load and fly them unless ROSC is achieved. A large untreated pneumothorax, I think it would be pushing it too far to say that's an absolute contraindication. Because uh, we got to keep in mind that all those physics, you know, Boyle's and Henry's laws and all those things that none of us can really remember, uh, except when we cram them the night before the test, um, they they don't really have that much of an impact when you're flying at 1,500 feet. Much more of an issue for fixed wing transport at 30,000 feet. Um, but in general, if you're going to transport somebody that you know has a large pneumothorax in the air, probably a good reason to go ahead and uh, place a chest tube before that patient flies. If it's just a small pneumothorax, it's probably not going to be a big deal in a helicopter. Even a small pneumothorax might be a big deal uh, for fixed wing flight, though. Well, we always love to hear cool patient care stories here on EMIGCast. So do you have a couple that you might be able to share? I do. Um I have uh, bonked my head enough times on this job that I have uh, personally received staples in my scalp uh, multiple times. So uh, many, many of my patient care stories are uh, more like bloopers than stories. But in terms of uh, uh, more in line with what you're thinking, uh, I recall one time, this was at least 12 years ago, uh, got called to a scene uh, I recall circling the scene and thinking, they said it was an MVC. Where is the car? I just couldn't see it. Um, and I thought, well, they must be landing us remote from where the actual accident happened. Well, they weren't landing us remote. They landed us right by the car, but I still couldn't see it because it was up in the air um, in in a tree. So this car is uh, had flown off the road, and it's literally up in the branches of a tree. Now, uh, as much as I wanted to, I did not scramble up the tree to try to uh, help that patient until uh, someone more skilled in extrication was able to get that patient down. Uh, when they did so, 
literally the moment they got the patient on the ground and on a stretcher, he went into a PEA traumatic arrest. And from that point on, it was a relatively straightforward case of a tension pneumothorax, uh, which uh, initially was uh, needle decompressed successfully, got ROSC. Uh, but uh, at the time, we weren't using very robust angiocasts, and they had a tendency to kink. And so I ultimately ended up having to uh, open up that chest and do a finger thoracostomy to achieve a sustained ROSC. Uh, but that was after I had first needled the patient several times. Um, and uh, that patient ended up having a relatively good outcome, but I will never forget uh, finding that, that car in the tree. Um, another one that comes to mind, another MVC case. This was only from a few years ago. And I recall looking at this car as we were circling the scene and preparing to land. And I remember thinking, that's it. Like, this car looked fine. Um, you can tell a lot about what you're going to find based on the carnage of the vehicle that you see from the air many times. And I was thinking, this car looks fine. This is going to be boring. Why'd they call us? But then we got on the ground, and once I got to the patient's bedside in the ambulance where the EMS crew had him, I could see why they called us, because this guy was crashing. Uh, map of 50, white as a ghost, pouring down sweat. And uh, as I examined him, um, I noticed some uh, strange pattern of ecchymosis in his flanks bilaterally. And the story was that he basically he had syncopized as he was driving and a very low mechanism. He was he was only doing about 25 miles an hour in town in, the, in a small town where he lived. And so I'm seeing bilateral flank ecchymosis, syncope, shock, and a theory came to mind. And so uh, as we are resuscitating this guy with our blood products and our TXA, I'm start, starting to think this wasn't trauma, but he is in hemorrhagic shock. And so as I called back to give my radio report to UC, I said, in addition to calling trauma, because, you know, it could be trauma, we should get them on board. Please give vascular a call and ask them to try and meet us at the bedside as well. And uh, so, yeah, it did turn out that he had a ruptured AAA, and that was the whole reason he had crashed his car. That guy uh, got a got a T-VAR. Uh, an endovascular repair and did incredibly well. And that patient actually has been hugely influential to me because uh, many months later, after he had fully recovered, he invited me uh, to a meeting of Rotary International, which is an organization that does a, a lot of incredible philanthropic work. But I wasn't really very f familiar with them at the time that he invited me to this meeting. Um, and I wasn't sure why he was inviting me to the meeting, uh, but he said he just wanted to uh, thank me publicly for taking care of him. And I was like, OK, if you want, I'll be happy to show up. So I show up thinking that he's just one of the members of the Rotary. Well, no, he's not the member. He is the he's he's not just a member. He is the, uh, the like the national president. Um, and he, so he is leading this meeting of several hundred very influential community leaders. And he is the leader of that group. And all I remember thinking as I watched this incredible man leading this group is 
He looked just like any other sick guy when he was in the back of that squad and I first met him. And so what that says to me is when you first meet a patient, whether it's in a cornfield, in an ambulance, uh, or the next patient you see in the ER, um, you're going to look at them. And too often, I think we, we get jaded and we can assume the worst about people, but you never really know when that next patient that you're going in to meet, because they're probably not going to tell you, but they could be, you know, one of the best people in your town or one of the best people in your state or on the planet. And so it just, it just reminded me that there's lots of amazing people out there in addition to all the knuckleheads we see all the time. And you don't really know by looking at them. So stop trying to judge and just assume that every person that you're going in to take care of is one of those amazing people and give them that level of care. Um, so uh, that's why that guy means a lot to me. He taught me that lesson. Those are some awesome stories. Thank you for sharing those. So in conclusion, do you have anything else that you would like to share to uh, the medical students or others uh, that are listening that are interested in emergency medicine and helicopter EMS? Yeah, really just two quick things. Um, one, if as you've sort of heard these discussions, if you have thought to yourself, that sounds like uh, something that I would probably like to make a big part of my career in the future, then one thing I would highly recommend that you do uh, as a medical student or as a resident is join AMPA, the Air Medical Physician Association. Um, and even if you are, are not in the United States, AMPA is absolutely uh, an international group. We have members on six continents. Neither of the A's in AMPA is America. So um, it's uh, for medical students and residents, it's only $75 a year. Um, you will get a subscription to the Air Medical Journal. Um, you will get many other benefits as well. But number one is you will get a networking group of, of, uh, freaks like me who uh, live and breathe helicopter EMS and nothing can replace that kind of a network in terms of the chance to actually make, make it a reality to have helicopter EMS be a part of your career, which frankly is not that easy to do. Uh, so that's one. And then the, the second thing again is, uh, I would recommend checking out, uh, taming the Um, if you go to the pre-hospital medicine section and then go to the air care flight physician orientation curriculum, um, I, I think you're going to enjoy the, uh, the procedural videos, the uh, podcasts, the blog posts that you're going to find there. Um, I'm really proud of the work that, uh, that we've done here and especially uh, the work of my, of my colleague and friend Jeff Hill. Yeah, and I've, I've really enjoyed the Taming the Shrew website as well, uh, both when I was rotating here and afterwards for references on, uh, you know, common procedures in the ED and stuff like that. So uh, really a great website that you guys have put together. Well, I just want to thank you once again for coming on uh, EMAGCast, Dr. Hinckley. It's, it's been really nice to chat with you and uh, had a great time on, uh, on the flights uh, that I took on air care when, uh, when I was rotating here. Um, had a couple great scene calls and a transfer um, on a beautiful day. That was pretty hard to beat. So it definitely, uh, definitely was a highlight of my rotation here. Right on, sir. Well, I'm, I'm glad you had that experience. And uh, thank you so much for the invitation to be a part of this. I'm honored. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of EMIGCAST. 
For the patient stories, in accordance with HIPAA, details have been omitted and changed, or patients have consented to have their story shared. Thanks for listening to this episode, and check out the notes for the link to Taming the Shrew. Additionally, a big thanks to the OHSU Bacon Fund for the grant which helped make this episode possible.